You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. I think I heard David say, your host for NSPS Radio Hour. Thanks for joining us again today. I know a lot of our listeners are regulars, so we're always happy to have you join us either live or through the podcast, which I know many of you do. In any case, we appreciate you joining us today. If you tuned in a little early today, you would have heard a commercial that is a great segue to what our show is about today. Uh, recently, Bogside Publishing has become a, a sponsor of our show, and we appreciate that very much. And David was just playing a, uh, one of the spots for Bogside right before we came on, so that was a, a great way for us to come in. And So today I have with me Tom Ives, who... Is the, I guess owner is the right word. Maybe there's other things to go behind that, Tom, of Bogside <laughs> Publishing, but thanks for joining me. I'm a cook of all trades, I guess, or whatever you want to <laughs> call me. Yeah, I do yeah, it all. It's great to have you on the show. I know we chatted a little bit last week about uh, you guys joining us for, that, for the advertising, and uh, mm. it, it, when that happened, it just brought into my mind that this is one of those things that we in the surveying profession have always just kind of taken for granted. It's it's like part of who we are, just like everything else we do in surveying. We 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 know that we have field books. We we take them for granted. We don't ever think about where they come from or or who publishes them or why or <laughs> any of those things. So I thought it'd be a really cool thing for the audience to get to to hear from you guys and a little bit about what the what the publishing industry is all about and how you got into it and what have you. So I really do appreciate you spending time with me this morning that that's great well no thank you for having us we're more than happy to try to explain a little bit about what we do here one of the things that's intriguing of course is is the name of the company and and i notice on the website there there's a picture of maybe that's a bog i don't know i'm not i'm a i'm a virginian so i'm not really sure what (laughs) bogs are but but nonetheless uh is it safe to assume that maybe you're located near one well, the story behind that is I live on Bow Bog Road in my little ah. town that, that I live in, and um, I have, there is a, a bog is just a low body of land that has usually natural springs popping in and out of it and running, so it doesn't require um, water coming from elsewhere. It's all generated within the bog. So we thought it would be kind of neat. It has kind of a connotation of... of um, surveying the the rough land so we that's where it came from yeah that's that's really interesting and actually what you just said about how bogs are formed and how they exist is is news to me it probably is to some of our, our members as well i guess i'd always thought of it as being the latter thing that you mentioned that you know some other water surface uh, supply comes in but so it's just uh, underneath the ground springs so obviously it's all fresh water i guess it is very fresh water. And as a young young person, I would fish that body of water quite extensively, and I, I learned from some historically bad lessons that you don't put your foot in certain areas in a bog because it just keeps going. And, and, uh, <laughs> so it, it's, uh, it is. You can actually see the springs bubbling up, the sand moving within the, bar, the bottom of the water. So it's kind of a neat thing. So are they deep? Um, yeah, not terribly deep. I mean, you can certainly, they can be six to eight feet deep. Um, okay. Generally, they're in a 
low body of land that has an, um, some place within it that the water can flow out of. So that controls the height. Of, and it's usually, um, I don't know what the technical word is, but the, we call them hummocks, where you, the grass will grow up and create a ball-type thing. It'll not quite float, but have a, you'll step on it and it'll move. So it's relatively shallow. So and so I'm I'm looking at the picture and I see the grass coming up and that yeah that's, that's just sort of a naturally occurring thing coming up through the sand I guess right right yep wow that's interesting so being as deep as it is you were talking about fishing I guess you could take a boat out there and fish if you wanted we take canoes it's really a lot of narrow um, really confined you you can't get at bogs as easily as you can lakes and streams it's usually because it the nature of it, you just have to kind of bushwhack through it and and find find the openings and, and take a canoe because you have to. So you have to carry whatever you're going to use. So it's usually lighter stuff. Well, from an environmental perspective, that's not such a bad thing. Not at all. I'm. <laughs> I belong to another organization that that's our creed is we we're protect the environment. So right. Now, just this, uh, I'm getting kind of on the surveying side of things here, but just, you've, you've sparked my curiosity. Um, how does how does all of that play into land ownership? I mean, are they on, I guess they're on somebody's property, or do they form borders, or maybe those are things you don't know. I, it just made yeah. me curious. No, usually, typically, you know, New England is so well settled, and it's usually, you know, I, I've been in other parts of the country where people build houses on places I can't quite imagine why, but usually there, some old farmer will own this extensive piece of land, and part of that land will may have a bog on it. No one, no one can build there, but so over the years, it, it kind of we have some the town of Bow, which is where I'm from, owns a lot of we. The town bought the land, so that it's going to be used for because it, it's an aquifer. So they're considering someday down the road maybe being able to tap into that water flow. Um, so there's a lot of that goes on here. Right. So it's more public space, I guess. Yeah. 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 Well, that, public that makes sense. So, and then you were talking about how, kind of how they form. Do they just, I mean, it this naturally occur, or yeah. do yeah. you see them springing up all the time, or or no? Or is it no, they're okay. usually relatively well-known locations where you'll find. Um, and and that's that's really important to a small town is to try and preserve and, and protect their aquifers because uh, I, I don't know about where you all are from, but it's uh, water, uh, fresh water is really getting to be a a commodity now, not just a, a right. It's it's a it's getting harder to come by. Yeah, I think that's probably true in in lots of parts of the country, and even if people are. Like where I grew up in the mountains, people either hand dug or dig wells or drill for wells and those kind of things, and that's sort of a hit and miss proposition as well. So right, um, yeah. and they take it for granted though that that's going to be right. there. And then, yeah, right you now, do. I mean, you 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 just assume that. As a matter of fact, I'm I'm in the process of looking at buying some land back where I grew up near. My son and his family live there, and my grandson wants to be a cow farmer, so <laughs> we're looking well, at purchasing some land. And one of the things that comes to mind is they don't have – they have uh, it's lots of places they don't have public water yet. So right. you're looking at, okay, where am I going to find the water? Out, out west is a lot of um, rancor over water rights. I mean, it's a tough thing. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. You know, they drain a lot of the rivers because of the big cities need the water. And, you know, the Rio Grande is a great one. It, 
ends up as a trickle someplace in the desert between Mexico and the United States. It doesn't even make the ocean anymore. Yeah, yeah, and it's really frightening, really, when you look at some of the photography you see out there these days of, um, I'm thinking of the huge lakes out, not only out there, but around here. It always strikes me when I'm flying to go across lakes in particular and look at how far down they are from where they once were. Um, It's pretty amazing to to look at. uh, If you go travel anywhere up the northern part of Canada and Alaska, you just look at the amount of fresh water that they have in reserve up there, and you think, oh, we'll never run out of water, but then you go to even the uh, southwest or more in Africa and some of the other Arab countries, they they don't have it. So we're very blessed to have water. We, really we are. Speaking of those other countries, do you get to travel there at all, or do you just see them like I do on TV? <laughs> I travel Alaska, and I get up in Canada. I'm a big fly fisherman, so I get out. Oh. That's that. That's why I know the bog so well, because I go down fly fishing. <laughs> um, and I travel, you know, I've been to a lot of, I haven't been to Africa yet, but I've been to most of the European countries, and they're, they're in the same situation, they're much much different than ours. They, they, the water is, you know, they're much, well, more used, I guess. So they, mm-hmm. they understand the, the need to preserve the water. Right, and and that whole water thing, um, obviously, that comes into property use and property rights and all of the kinds of things that surveyors get involved in somewhere along the way. And of course, Definitely. oftentimes are yeah. are asked to go out and do surveys. Uh, on those types of properties. Being a fly fisherman, by the way, I was curious, have you have you done that in Montana at all? I've gone out and done the Yellowstone. I've done the Snake. I've done some of the ones. I'm not sure. I don't think I was in Montana. I was mostly Utah. But, uh-huh. you know, to get to, to talk about the surveying part of this, you know, if you go down into North Carolina and you're a property owner and you own both sides of the river, you own the, wa- the land under the river, where in New Hampshire... You don't own anything above the high water mark. The, the high water mark in the spring of the river is state owned, so you only own to that mark. So that's the difference. Every state has a different laws that govern what the property owner owns and what he doesn't own in, in the rivers and the streams, and even in the ponds. So. Right, and and what they can do with that, obviously, because right. with that ownership, you sort of end up in a situation where you may be able to affect other people's use of it to some degree. I, I guess there's some level of, of um, eminent domain is probably not the right word, but some uh, element where people can't just prevent anybody else from using the water, although they may try right. sometimes. I don't know. You can float the water, but you can't put your foot on the, on the bottom of the stream. The minute right. you do that, you're trespassing. But you can right. float across any body of water. I don't think there's a law in the United States yet that prohibits the movement of, of somebody over the top of the water. But yeah, that's that's actually a really good question for our listeners today <laughs> about, <laughs> you know, how does that work in your state? Because I know yeah. a guy, I actually got, know a guy who, who lives in North Carolina, but and he does a lot yeah. of, he writes books and does a lot of seminars, and, and a good part of what he talks about are water rights. Yeah. He's written yeah. several books about water rights in different parts of the country, and it is really intriguing to, to hear how that is different and what kind of issues come up, and he's done tons of research on legal cases, and um, you know it becomes a big factor in the surveying uh, profession. By the way, because typically we, as as surveyors, uh, depending on where we've honed our skills, so to speak, but 
in a lot of cases, we don't really get into water rights very much or even how to define hydrographic boundaries. We're licensed to do that, but that doesn't necessarily mean we've actually done the work. And uh, so here at NSPS, we have a hydrographic certification that has some impact on that, although most of it's on the on the seas. But Yeah. So it, it really is an important part of, of how surveyors get involved in in the lives of other people, whether it's a you know where a lake boundary is, or uh, when somebody's subdividing property along a lake, you, you got to figure out where the oh, the rights of the terribly the power important. Company. Yeah, New England being as well settled as like I said earlier that, that we have a lot of antiquated laws that still are on the books. So it's really really important that a surveyor or, or will have somebody on their staff or somebody that they can call to find out what the rights are when they Very go out true. and start surveying borders, boundaries well, or not, of water. We're at, our, we're at our first break, so oh. let's go do that, oh. and we'll be back in a couple of minutes. Okay. Field books. There is a difference, and the difference is made in the USA by family-owned and operated Bogside Publishing in New Hampshire. For over 38 years, the family business has produced the finest, most durable, rain-resistant, and most affordable field books in the land surveying and engineering industry. Demand the best from your supplier, Bogside Publishing Field Books. This is Lawyer Liz. Join me each week as we discuss drones, the Internet of Things, and all the technology in between. It's Buzz Off with Lawyer Liz, Wednesdays at 2. Quick Stakes is your answer to staking. Lightweight, easy to ride on, easy to use, easy to find, and won't break your back carrying them like the old-fashioned wooden stakes. Have you tried a sample? If not... Get a pen and paper and write down this number, 800-438-0387, or go to quickstake.com, that's Q-U-I-K-S-T-A-K-E.com, and order your samples. Ask your surveying supply dealer for quickstakes today. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. We're back with Tom Ives talking about, well, in our first segment, we talked a lot about surveying and, and water and bogs and those kind of things. But, but it, I, as I was saying, uh, Tom, on the break, uh, I, I'm pretty sure anybody who is going to be listening to this show is, is not going to think that, we've, that we're talking about the things we're talking about. But to me, it's really interesting because to have someone who, who's publishing things that, that we work with and and actually has an interest in what we do and has some knowledge of it. I, in the break, maybe you can talk about this just a little bit, and I don't want to get too far off field here, but uh, you were talking about having your land surveyed and, and an older surveyor had done it, uh, did you say, 50 years before or something? Or? Yeah, my, my land had been subdivided um, back in the 1950s, and, and when I built my house it was behind all these houses so i had to have it surveyed well i was able to get the original surveyor um, a gentleman by the name of asa morgan come in and he brought these big spools of wire with notches in them and he says all right run down there because i helped him <laughs> and he said run down to that corner and, and and i'll tell you when to stop and we went all the way around the property with this wire thing and and it was fascinating but he old timer knew his business 
did a great job. Now, one of the things that is so uh, intriguing about that, for one thing, but also sort of a you know a wake up to us in the surveying community, is that he understood that what he was going to be doing was based on a me- methodology that is way different and antiquated in surveyors' minds, I guess, because, you know, we've got satellites and GPS and our, all of our fancy equipment that we use now. And and just the fact of what you were talking about there kind of brings out the idea, and this is a sad fact, that, you know, sometimes you'll go look for a property corner and, and you'll find three or four or five irons really close to each other where surveyors have come in using new equipment to survey old surveys. And... You know, mathematically, the numbers may not work out if you if you locate them using the high precision instruments. But if you were using that old methodology, they probably would. So it's a really good lesson in surveying, actually, to have you talk about that because uh, one of the things that we in surveying like to say is we're following in the footsteps of our predecessors. Well. Yeah, we are, but are we really when we're not taking into account how they did their work? Mm-hmm. Oh, it's 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 a big issue, and I, I mentioned earlier, of course, and everybody that listens to me on the radio knows I grew up in the mountains, and that was one of the things we always had to take into account, surveying in the mountains, because in, years ago, distances were measured along the slope and not as if they're horizontal, and and now distances are are written and recorded as if they're horizontal. Yeah, so. see, I, I'm not. Uh, I, I am a bookbinder by heart, so there is a. I know a little bit about what I like to think I know a little bit about what what I'm interested in, but um, I'm not. That's neat. I mean, it's neat to know how the, how you, things were used to be done and, and why they were done the way they were. So, well, it is, and I, I think it po- points out an even bigger topic that we won't need to get into. But I'll just mention it is this whole idea of. You got to understand the past if you're going to learn from it, mm-hmm. and and that applies to pretty much everything in life. <laughs> Amen. Uh, uh, you can you can take that on anything that's that's ever come along. But so let let's talk a little bit about Bob, Bob's Bogsite Publishing. Now you guys started what about thirty years ago? Yeah, we were trying to do the math, and I think it was in 1978 that we. Uh, Started making survey books, um, so it's been, I don't know what the what, my math isn't that good, but it's over thirty years um, ago that we um, started the process. So was when you started the the process was it a, a going concern already that you purchased, or did you no. just start it from scratch? What what happened is, and then this is the lineage of it. My father. Was the, owned the bindery at that time. My father and a partner, and he had someone walk in off the street that said, "I want to, I want you to make survey books for me to sell," and it inquired, uh, retooling some machines and buying new machines and, and revamping a little bit of the process. And we did that for oh well until 2012, um, and that company that wanted us to do that, decided that they were, the gentleman was old and he decided he wanted to retire and he was going to sell the business and asked us if we wanted to buy that segment of the business and we we decided that that wasn't um, 
the, it was a negotiation thing, and the finances didn't work out for us. So we decided not to. Then we come to find out that he had sold it to somebody else, and that somebody else had decided to go to China to buy the books and have them manufactured. And we thought that was a shame to, for a U.S. company that's been around as long as we had manufacturing these to, to lose the market. So that's when I decided that we'd start our own Bogside Publishing Company to start making books right here in New Hampshire. So when you made that decision, I, I, and I'm just trying to get uh, geographically uh, oriented here, were were you at the very beginning in the same place you are now, or when you went to do Bogside, did you go to a different location? Well, it, it had nothing to do with, with the Bogside, the move. It was... I, I was in a very old mill factory, in this, and, and if you can picture an old mill in New England, that was us. And we were right on Main Street on a, in, the, in the capital of, of Concord, New Hampshire, and we were the last manufacturer on Main Street. So we decided that we really needed to move out of that, so we bought a brand-new building um, in Bow, which is another town just south of, of Concord, um, and we moved into there, and it just happened at all worked out the same time we moved and then four months later we decided okay let's stop Bogside so um, that, that all, other building must have been an intriguing building being near a, an old uh, uh, yes. I, I think I understand you said it was a mill well it was it, you, everybody in the United States knows what a Concord coach is because every western there is has a coach in it and that's a Concord coach and they were manufacturing Concord New Hampshire and this, the building was made as a foundry. Um, up in the attics, we found the blueprints, and we found some of the, the wooden frames that they actually put in the castings, so the sand castings, to make parts of the um, cocky coach. So um, that's what it was originally done in 1842, I think, it was the building wow. was made. Um, so it goes back a little bit. It, it, and and you were right. It had three stories. It had an old dumb waiter in the. It was, it was great. I loved it because I I spent thirty five years there, and I, all the quirks and all the idiosyncrasies that it had were great. I mean, but you know, for a manufacturing standpoint, it was terrible. <laughs> it just uh, it had uh, slopes and bumps and corners and nooks and crannies, and it just didn't flow well. So. So when Ooh, you good. moved to where you are now, you just built your whole new structure. Right, right. Yeah. We, yeah. we literally had to, it was a, there was nothing here. We, we started with nothing. It's it's interesting when you mentioned 1842, um, and what it brought to mind, I guess, is getting back to the beginning of our conversation when we were, you were talking about going fishing out west. And I travel, obviously, a lot in my job and spend a lot of time out there, and it it never occurred to me, being a Virginian, a, a, a descendant of colonists, yeah. um, how the people basically west of the Mississippi um, look at our history almost with some level of awe or something, because you know their history as part of the whole, what is now the United States, is fairly young. Yeah. And and so they they think of us, I think, in a way that kind of maybe we think of Europe, just because of the difference in the timing of when things got started. 
Yeah, but it's just in. a lot of the changings of the laws too. The, when we, yeah. I don't want to get back into the whole water thing again, but that's why their laws are so much different than our laws. In the, in the eastern part of the United States, land rights were taken for granted. Out in the Midwest, with the land grants that went on and all of that, it was a fight over every inch they had, and they mm-hmm. and they had a lot more land to, to deal with. So it's a whole different culture out there. You're right. Yeah, it certainly is, and just the whole way it was laid out in you know in the public land system with the big uh, rectangles, the sections, mm-hmm. um, and just an entirely different way of looking at how land is parceled. You know, here mm-hmm. ours is based on some creek or ridge top or you know, <laughs> whatever happened to be handy to, to mark the land yeah. at the time. The oak and tree in the corner. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. And theirs, theirs kind of ignores all that. You know, it's just, okay, it's from this rectangle to that rectangle. And it must that, make that, it a lot easier. Well, it's supposed to. <laughs> I'm not sure it does in every case. Um, but just a, such a monumental task. I, I don't know what the surveyors were using back in those days. I don't know if they had field books or not. I, they had some kind of field books. I'm, I'm sure they probably weren't what we have today. But just thinking about all the work that they had to do to try to keep themselves in alignment with a predetermined direction, not following some stream or something that's natural, but you know, trying to stay online with, with north and, and, and the east and west. Right. It had to be a really big challenge. I think it's still a challenge, actually, in a lot yeah. of cases. But, of course, we have much more sophisticated instruments now, and we don't observe the the sun and the stars the way they used to, really, uh, all that often. We have satellites that do that now. So we're we're slaves to the satellite, not to the, <laughs> not to the yeah. celestial beings anymore. So that's just kind of the way it, it works and, his, and the way everything turns um, and changes. And I'm sure you've seen changes, too, um, as you've gone through. Although I do have to say, in looking at the field book, the, the underlying principle looks really similar pretty much exactly to what I started out with back in the 1960s and I'm sure before that. So I guess that, that part of it – actually, we're getting pretty close to break. We're a minute and a half out, so maybe I won't jump into that yet. But I, I, would, I would be interested in – and I don't know if you even know this, but if you do, I'd be interested in knowing – what was the underlying guideline or principle on how field books are laid out from, you know, on the inside? Because you've got the, the one side with the columns and then the other side where we draw little pictures. <laughs> and so I don't know if that's based on something in history that's, and maybe you don't know that, but I, I am curious to, to hear about that if you do. Okay. I don't know that much, but I can, <laughs> you know, I just make them. I don't use them. <laughs> <laughs> well, it makes it makes a lot of sense to surveyors because the way it's laid out and the way we keep notes. It's amazing and, how some people, some of the companies like certain graphs and others don't <laughs> even use them. That always amazed me. Um, so it would be interesting to to hear from the readers, if the, uh, the listeners, if they have um, why they want certain things. Um, yeah, yeah, that's actually that. a really good question. Maybe we should write something and put it in the newsletter, and yeah. and ask for input on that. I, I I'll make a note of that. I think that'd be a really cool thing to do because people love to respond to when you ask them questions about that kind of thing. So let's go to break. We'll be back in a couple minutes. 
Okay. Quick stakes. Does your survey supply dealer have quick stakes? If not, demand that they start carrying quick stakes. Did you know that quick stakes are better for your back than your local chiropractor? Lightweight and easier to use than the old heavy wooden stake. Order a sample today and prove it to yourself. Quick stakes, your back friendly stake. With all the back and forth in today's politics, it seems as though the Constitution gets lost in the mix. If you want to brush up on your Constitution, then join Michael Conley every Wednesday from 4 to 5 p.m. for the show Our Constitution on AmericasWebRadio.com. Bogside Publishing. For over 38 years, this family-owned New Hampshire business has manufactured the most durable, rain-resistant, and most affordable made-in-the-USA field books for the land surveying and engineering industry. And Bogside Publishing is still doing it today. Demand Bogside Field Books from your supplier or go to bogsidepublishing.com for a list of exclusive Bogside dealers. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Okay, for the listeners, be sure to look for a, a, uh, one of our upcoming newsletters because I'm going to ask the question of who knows the secret for why field books are laid out the way they are. And I'm sure we're going to have more than one answer. <laughs> Because we're we're talking to surveyors and we all have our own opinions about things, but I'm sure there's a a strategy for all of this uh, that goes way back. And like I said, having been somebody who's used field books for most of my life, uh, you, you just kind of take them for granted, and you know what they're there for and how you use them. Um, and uh, I, it would be interesting to see uh, what what that pattern is is based on. Now, do you ever get any kind of requests from, of course, you're selling surveyors primarily, but I was just going to ask if you ever got requests to to create any different type of type of Oh, yeah. Oh, sure. Oh, yeah. You we do? Get, yeah, oh, yeah. We, um, what, it, I'll tell you a quick little side story. When we first started Bogside, we, we struggled to try and figure out what we were going to call each of our different books, like the 320, the 150, the 640. And what we did is we thought we did it right. We took the number of squares in an inch and the number of squares in, in on the page, and we said, okay, there's 640 of those in that page. We'll just call it a 640. Well, our math was never good. I've never been a great math person. but So we kind of kind of messed that up a little bit. But, you know, we you look at all the different surveying books, and they all have they know the number of squares in an inch. And and that must mean something, and I'm and I can't tell you what that means or why they the need is. So I really would be curious to find out one why they do that, and two why some companies that we do business with will just get our three twenty books and they'll never buy a six forty, and it it just doesn't make I don't know why. It, it was, I'm curious to find that out. So if they want to put that on the side, I'd be happy to hear that too. <laughs> yeah, and for the people uh, listening. Uh, I'm going to put I'm going to put this in the newsletter and and raise this question and see if we can get some answers about that because I I suspect the answer to your last question 
probably is because that's the way the book looked when I first started buying it. <laughs> well, that's <laughs> you know, the, a simple answer. <laughs> yeah, the first day I was on the job, my mentor had these kind of books, and so yeah. so that's that's what I'm using. But that may not be true. I don't know. But it'll be interesting, as you say, to see what what people have to say about well, it. Yeah, and it doesn't even mean we sell books in Florida, we sell books in Eugene, Oregon, we even sell books in, in Honolulu, Hawaii, and it and it doesn't have any pattern. It isn't like all the books in Eugene, Oregon, that's all they get. They get different ones. So it doesn't even have a geographic thing to it. You you may be perfectly right, maybe just because that's the one I've, we have a saying around here because that's where it was done. My grandfather did it that way, so that's the way we do it, and and that's just the way it is. Right. That's like, um, I don't know if you ever heard this story, but it's kind of a cute little story about um, a, a lady who was cooking, I guess it was a roast or something, and she always cut the end off of it before she put it into the cooker. And one day her husband asked her why she did it that way. She said, well, because my grandmother taught me how to do that. So mm-hmm. I think her grandmother passed. She went back and asked her mom about it. and. She said, well, the reason she did it was because her pan was only so big. <laughs> what does that sound like a New England? <laughs> New England saying, that's the way we do things around here, I have to tell you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's, I think that's probably true most places. Yeah. People, people get into a, a pattern of doing things, so to speak. Yeah. And so, so when you started out, now you're, you say your dad was there obviously when you guys first started and i know you have some siblings and and you still have i think you told me one brother that's still involved one one of my younger brothers is still works for me and i have a son that works for me i had two sons working for me for a while but only one working now funny how they get out of college they can't decide what they want to do and it was i was the happiest day of my life when my youngest son says you know i think i want to be a bookbinder and and can I come back and work at the bindery? And I go, sure. <laughs> so, in, it's always it's really interesting and and I think uh, pleasing to the elder of us who, when our children decide to do something like we've done. Um, and you see that actually in the surveying business. Uh, I mean, it's I won't say it's prevalent. But it certainly, over time, has been one of those passed down kind of things from father to son to grand, you know, all down the line. And I, I think that's probably diminishing a little bit more now in in today's world. But you still see it in a lot of cases. College, getting a college education is so important nowadays that that makes that broadens their ability to do other things. My son that um, works at the bindery now is an archaeologist. He went to four years of college to become an archaeologist, and he realized after that that he didn't like it as much, and it was uh, and and there wasn't a big demand for it either. So, and and not that he's lazy or anything, because he's very talented, and he just decided that he could do uh, have a nice life working in the family business. So he's a third generation, which is a unique thing, and I I applaud those surveyors that do the same. I mean, that's that's great. Yeah, it's it's kind of a, a neat situation. I I happen to not be one whose whose son followed in the footsteps. Although my son is a, a high school teacher, so he teaches some elements of what we do. <laughs> so yeah. that's that's as close as we've gotten with him. But uh, nevertheless, you 
I, you do see that, and it is such a rewarding thing. You know that that's sort of a pattern that's followed through history. I guess you you go out west, you see farmers who's been in the farming business every generation since they went out there, and um, so it's that's kind of nice to have people working uh, in, in the same direction on something that's for sure. So, in the company, you you mentioned that you have your well, you said one or two of your sons there, and uh, a brother. Is how many folks do you have actually? There is right now. There's twenty of us wow. combined in the bindery. Um, we fluctuate somewhat, but that's generally where the number we have. Binderies are, um, are um, intense on labor. Labor intense, I should say. There's a lot of process that goes through so there's a lot of learning of machinery that not you know i'd like to think i could run every machine i thought i could at one time but the, the computer has driven me away from that and <laughs> i can't, can't keep up with that so i think it's probably affected all of us that way that's <laughs> that's for sure yeah so so how does the process work exactly well, typically we have a printer. We don't print anything. So typically we have a printer, print the grid. It'll come in in big flat sheets, usually 32 pages on a on a sheet. We'll fold it, and then we'll tip the front end and back end paper on it. Then we'll collate it into the number of signatures, which is the number of pages in a book. And your standard thir- book has got five 32s in a, in a curve table, so there's seven, six signatures, and put it into the sewing machine. The sewing machine will sew that into a book block, goes into a gluing machine. The gluing will glue, the combination of the gluing and the sewing literally holds the book block together. Then it goes into a trimmer, and it trims the three sides so, so that all the pages are single. And then we have a machine that round corners the two edges, and then uh, as that process is going on, we have another whole part of it that makes the cases and does the stamping. And, and then we have a called a binding line, and the binding line is set up so that the book blocks and the cases are combined running through this machine that's probably 35 feet long or so. And, it, and at the end of that line, the books come popping out, and they're all already a bit packaged, and we usually package them in groups of six and pack them in boxes, and send them out to our customers. Sounds simple, so, doesn't it? <laughs> well, everything sounds simple if you know what you're doing. <laughs> <laughs> well, Not sure. so much if you if you don't, that's for sure. So with, uh, like, the image that's on the front of the, of the hardbound book, that gets yeah. stamped on kind right. of after the fact, or is that before? No, it gets that's out? before. That, the, the other part of the binding is the covers being made and they're being stamped so that there's a... Uh, two pieces of cardboard and then a center strip holding it. So you look, look at a, any book and you'll notice that there's two panels front and back and then there's a spine area. Well, right after that's made, if you're um, Rob's uh, surveying company and you want Rob stamped on your front cover, we get a die made and it's a process of heat and pressure and we can put pretty much any color that you want it, gold, silver, orange, or green, and you can stamp that and then it the cover goes into a machine that dewaps it and makes it nice and flat, and then it goes into the binder. And, and when it comes out of the end of the binder, Rob's surveying is, if you wanted 500 of them, you get 500 Rob survey. Is that something pretty commonplace that people want their company on it? You know, it, more and more, and it's, and it's because 
I mean, we have um, small runs of 50 that we'll do for sand and gravel companies that have us, they must do some surveying or they must need to have that. And we'll do, you know, uh, a gravel pit, and it'll say their name. So, yeah, um, it's a really good, it's kind of neat because one thing, it's a visual thing. The people can look at the book and say, hey, that's me. I've got my name on this book. And for some reason, people really like that thought that they have something in their hand they can say and it's bragging rights or whatever you want to use term you want to use right do people ever ask you to put like numbers on them or anything like that um we number some books not very many because it, it, the what the, we have a customer that wants his pages page numbers and then in the front of the book he wants book one of 500 two of 500 and he wants it on the cover too and that's a little bit tricky because if in the process you do lose materials and books, you know, and if something happens, it gets damaged. So we have to go back in and, and tag them if we lose them and then go back in and replace them with the, the right book. So, But do we do it? Yes, we do it. Don't do it. Yeah, because I, I, the reason I asked that question is I could see where maybe somebody might want that kind of, of structure in the way they keep their books or, or whatever. Uh, of course, I've, I always just depended on I'm going to write in the book what this project's about or what the projects that are in the book are about, and then I'll have a record of that somewhere that I can go back to. But I can understand where, where people might want to do that uh, well, for whatever their purposes are. Right. Well, you can put a magic marker on the side of the book, and the, and the cover is waterproof, so it, and the magic marker is, is indelible ink. So it, usually you can, you know, I would think that would be a much simpler way of doing it, but I, I, yeah, you're right. But you know, if, if it's a fairly substantial company, yeah, we'd be happy to do. We do it for uh, 50 books, as well as, well as 5,000 books. I mean, we do a right. lot of surveying books. Well, we are 30 seconds from what will be our last break before our last segment. So when we come back, maybe we can talk a little bit about the types of books. I know you do several. You do some uh, what I call, I guess, a ring binder book. Um, mm -hmm. And then you obviously publish a few more things than, than simply survey books. So uh, maybe we can touch on that when we come back and then finish up with anything else we need to let our listeners know about Bogside Publishing and publishing in general. As I told you before, this is all really intriguing to me because I'm one of those servers that still has shelves full of these things. So we're going to break and we'll be back in just a couple of minutes. Bogside Publishing. For over 38 years, this family-owned New Hampshire business has manufactured the most durable, rain-resistant, and most affordable made-in-the-USA field books for the land surveying and engineering industry. And Bogside Publishing is still doing it today. Demand Bogside Field Books from your supplier or go to bogsidepublishing.com for a list of exclusive Bogside dealers. Whether cruising the strip in a 57 Chevy or taking the family on a vacation in a 71 Oldsmobile Vista Cruiser, you need to tune in to Classic Cars with Steve Ronaldo and Jim Weber every Saturday from 8 to 9 a.m. on AmericasWebRadio.com. Quick Stakes is your answer to staking. Lightweight, easy to ride on, easy to use, easy to find, and won't break your back carrying them like the old-fashioned wooden stakes. Have you tried a sample? If not, get a pen and paper and write down this number, 800 438 
888-253-0387 or go to quickstake.com. That's Q-U-I-K-S-T-A-K-E.com and order your samples. Ask your surveying supply dealer for quickstakes today. Field books. There is a difference, and the difference is made in the USA by family-owned and operated Bogside Publishing in New Hampshire. For over 38 years, the family business has produced the finest, most durable, rain-resistant, and most affordable field books in the land surveying and engineering industry. Demand the best from your supplier, Bogside Publishing Field Books. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. While we were on break, David was talking with us uh, on uh, off offline there, and he mentioned the the plastic sleeve things. Maybe you can talk about that a little bit. Well, basically, what some of the companies that we do business with, some of the DOTs um, require us to put a pocket in the front and in the back, um, a little plastic sleeve where you can insert a card. Um, it may have the daily log or what. I'm not even sure what they all use them for, but they they request that. And that we do a lot of that personalized things. If you come call us up and say, well, we only want four... 40 pages in the book, or we want our books to be different trim sizes. We can, that's all easily done, um, uh, relatively easily done, I should say. Um, I don't know if my help would say that, but um, we can we can adapt to the needs of a customer. And we have, in a lot of cases, um, changed our books for them. Yeah, that's really interesting. I, one of the things that you mentioned to me when we were talking before is that you guys have uh, school groups that maybe come into the factory and you show them right. what you're doing. And so we, we hope when you're telling them what you're doing, you say, and I'm doing this for surveyors. They're really important and you need to be one. So. <laughs> I, I'd be glad to do that. I, I have to fess, I haven't done that yet, but I'm, I have a group coming in starting next week. I have 28 kids coming in until January, uh, five a week until January. And, um, I will make sure I, I tell them all that. <laughs> what, it's yeah, another that, business. That's that's a big thing for us now. As we uh, talked about earlier, with the the age of the surveyor being what it is, we're in in huge recruitment mode. And one of the things we're learning as we've gone along is that it's never too early to start talking to young people about what they're going to do, because oftentimes you wait too late. You you have to be very proactive. You really have to. If you're if you're a small businessman. And you don't know who your high school teacher is that does. And a lot of these schools now have um, technical parts of them where they'll teach kids electricity, they'll teach them printing, they'll teach them auto mechanics. If you don't go in to see that that coordinator and say, I'm a surveyor, I would like you to guys to kind of start a touch of class on, on learning how to be a surveyor, you're, mis- you're, you're missing the boat because that, that's where I get a lot of my young, and I don't get a lot, but I get enough young people coming into my company that I can, you know, recruit that. And that's, it's a great, and it's, and they love it because it's new to them and they, you make it interesting. That's a really good plus, I have to say. You know, one of the things talking about that on the school side that, that seems to me to be a really positive thing, and I mentioned my son earlier being a, a school teacher, and he actually teaches a, 
a STEM class, science, technology, engineering, and math type class. And uh, But what I'm seeing, maybe this has been going on longer because it's been a long time since I was in school, but that w- the years I was in school, we had something called the uh, Future Farmers of America. You may have heard of those guys. Mm-hmm. Um, but that was really about the only sort of uh, vocational thing that was available to anybody. Uh, and now it seems the schools are branching into lots of different areas where they can help people, youngsters learn something about jobs that they might be able to do. And and although I think the primary focus is always going to be toward we got to make everybody college prep, the fact is everybody's not going to college. And uh, I think it's great when high schools offer other types of education for for students who can learn enough about something that they might want to do that they can do that. Yep. No, they call them regional votex up here, uh-huh. and they, they'll get five or six high schools within busing distance, and they'll bring, them, bring those kids that want to learn this, the trade, uh, that, you know, I don't know, plumbers, electricians, they want to learn that because I'm sorry to say up here they're in such high demand, you can't find electricians, you can't find carpenters, you, and they make a very good living um, but the regional votex bring them in and and teach them. So yeah, they they still have that. It's just um, a little bit more sophisticated. And one of the things we've been um, encouraged about is we we attend the school counselors association conferences, and the one we go to is the national, but our state states have them as well. And that's one of the things we hear from the teachers. They'll they'll come and look at our demonstration, and instantly they'll say, "Can can you send something to my school? I've got I know." six kids in my school who would be perfect for this sure. and so engaging them of course is is helpful too to uh help identify things that that's out that out there for for people to do which as you say are really high paying jobs um and it, it's it's almost as if in some cases it's it people are saying well if you aren't going to get a four-year degree or be a doctor then you're going to be on welfare your whole life. Yeah, <laughs> that's yeah, just not that's no, just not true. No, no, not at all. And then, and then there's nothing. My wife's a, a school teacher, and and there's nothing. A college education is a wonderful thing, but you, you said it. It's not for everybody. And and there are kids out there that are mechanically inclined that could do a wonderful job, and maybe not college prep, but they they can they sure can fix a motor. And when you're broken down on the side of the highway, you're happy to have them there. So, Absolutely. And speaking of students, by the way, I want to make sure I, I get the, the plugs, not the right word. Gratitude is the right word. Uh, you guys are going to supply the, the field books for our student competition this year, which is really, it's timely and it's really neat because this year we're going back to a field exercise that the students perform on site rather than doing a project back at their school and then bringing their report and presenting it to everybody they're, we're going to be out in, in las vegas so they're going to go out in kind of the countryside there somewhere and and turn them loose with some ancient equipment and a field book <laughs> and say okay here's what you got to do now keep your notes right and then come back and write a report about it and give that presentation in front of the judges so um it's this particular year and it's great that that we've made our connection because they're going to be using those field books for that purpose. So we really do appreciate that. No, we're, we're so happy to do it. I mean, that's our future is, is what we, we're talking about. And, and if you can encourage young people to to join the ranks, that's, that's uh, we should be doing that. So 
Absolutely, and, and I even asked, I might have mentioned this to you during our phone call, I asked our professors in the schools, like, do you guys still teach people how to use field books? I mean, you got all the the GPS and the drones and all these kind of things, and, and their answer always is, yes, we absolutely do, because you're always going to need to know how to gather and record information on your own, because you never know. <laughs> You know, we may all be back at some point if the systems fail or things are changing so rapidly you don't you don't know. So you need to understand those underlying principles for sure. I can't agree more. <laughs> Being that's my application and my my <laughs> child's my child's future income, <laughs> I'm happy that they're 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 and it's not a bad it's a very smart thing to do. I mean, the broader your abilities, the better you are. Absolutely. You know, we've talked about the bound books. I know you do this. The, I guess that's called spiral bound yeah. uh, books as well. And then you do the little one job books. And and I see that you uh, you were. Uh, I, I don't know if that's your publication, but the one you show on the website of the Fishing Journal. I thought that was kind of cool. Yeah, we do that. <laughs> and you, and probably you understand why. Now that I spilled the beans, yeah. I'm a fly fisher. Right, right. That's a. I, that's what made me think about it the early part of our conversation. I was like, okay, here's, here's, here's why this is coming out. Yeah. And then in your sketchbook, so are those like for artists? or? Yeah, we do a sketchbook and we do um, journals for just normal journals. Um, we just did a bunch of books for the Quarter Horse Association in New uh, England that they wanted to uh, um, give to their young people. To, to, and it was, I think it was a journal, ended up being a, some sort of a journal. But um, you know, people don't write like they used to. They get on their computers and stuff. And, you know, if you learn how to write and, and put something down with a pen, it's just so much more relaxing and, and fun, I guess, to go back and look at it when you're older. <laughs> that's true. And one of the things that's always been interesting to me, and I guess part of it comes from the, the thing that I've always done, but is to go back and read notes in really old field books uh, or look at plats that old surveyors created and drafted by hand, as, as did I in my early stages, or even go back and read the letters that my grandmother and my mom exchanged when my dad was in World War II. Um, just the, the the penmanship, and it's it's just amazing to go back and look at how people were able to, to write so well and so uh, legible. Uh, and all of that's important. Well, it's one of their main uses. Are, that was how they communicated. It wasn't like they could pick up a phone and say, how are you, Grandma? They they had to write those letters. They had to be able to tell people what their thought patterns were and how they felt about themselves and other people and what was going on in their lives. I mean, so, yeah, you're right. It's, it's kind of an interesting thing. And uh, But we're, you know, I'm, I cannot say enough about how happy we were that, we were able to promote that, give those kids those books, and and uh, and get get them something that they can have. I don't know what they keep them or what they have them in the future, but you know that it's something that they'll have and they can look at later on. Right, and and I know a lot of young kids. Uh, well, maybe not now, but there was a time when you could take a, a book like this bound field book. And, and actually use it for a journal. <laughs> you know, just keep track of your daily activities. Yep, um, we do that. So there's just so so many uses for for the the books, and I think it's just 
one of the reasons I wanted to do the show was just to demonstrate that you need these types of, of products for uh, everybody to use, not just surveyors, uh, but particularly in the, on the field book side, just because um, it's, it's important to have something to hold in your hand sometimes. Yeah. It's, it's and just, at the end of the day, that you will have that. You, if, you, if you have notes in your computer and it crashes and you lose all those, you'll have that. But, you know, I'm not getting off topic, but I, I was sitting here thinking, you know, I think there's 18 different books that we produce for the surveying industry. Um, and you mentioned the one-jobbers all the way up to the wire or the three-ring binders, six-ring binders, I guess they are, and then the myriad of different size grids that we produce. And, you know, it's it's one of those cases where and we're always, we always seem to be finding, oh, we didn't quite, well, somebody else wants something a little bit different, so we'll do that. And and yeah. so it's it's it may be an old process or an old traditional way of doing things, but it's still very vibrant and very renewable. And very important. No, no question. Well, we're in our last minute, believe it or not. And wow. I know when you and I first started talking about this, you were wondering how we were going to get through the first minute. <laughs> and, and here we are on our last minute. Uh, but it's just been great talking to you today. And this is a topic that's uh, so important to us in the surveying profession. And just so proud to, to have you guys joining us and being part of what we're doing. And uh, and just thank you so much for being here and sharing the story about Bogside Publishing today. Well, thanks for having us. I, I enjoyed my hour, and you were right. It went very quickly. Yeah, it always does. We At the end, I'm rushing around to try to get the last-minute stuff in because the conversation's gone. Uh, it just goes so, so fast. But, uh, again, it's great talking to you, and hopefully we'll get to come up and see the see the site someday. Well, the invitation's open to all any surveyor that wants to come to Bow, New Hampshire and come into the bindery. We'll probably even give you free samples. That sounds great. Thanks, Tom. I really appreciate you joining me today. Thank you. Take Have care. Have a good day. Yep. Bye-bye. Bye. Field books. There is a difference, and the difference is made in the USA by family-owned and operated Bogside Publishing in New Hampshire. For over 38 years... The family business has produced the finest, most durable, rain-resistant, and most affordable field books in the land surveying and engineering industry. Demand the best from your supplier, Bogside Publishing Field Books. This is Lawyer Liz. Join me each week as we discuss drones, the Internet of Things, and all the technology in between. It's Buzz Off with Lawyer Liz, Wednesdays at 2. Whether cruising the Strip in a 57 Chevy or taking the family on a vacation in a 71 Oldsmobile Vista Cruiser, you need to tune in to Classic Cars with Steve Ronaldo and Jim Weber every Saturday from 8 to 9 a.m. on AmericasWebRadio.com. Quick Stakes. Does your survey supply dealer have Quick Stakes? If not, demand that they start carrying Quick Stakes. Did you know that Quick Stakes are better for your back than your local chiropractor? lightweight and easier to use than the old heavy wooden steak. Order a sample today and prove it to yourself. Quick Steaks, your back-friendly steak. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.